Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. For me, a personal really changing moment was my first meal at Chez Panisse. And this was the food I thought food should always be. And it was just tremendously exciting. And that's what made me, I think, really want to take cooking seriously. That was Deborah Madison, nationally recognized expert on vegetarian cooking, also author of a new book, in My Kitchen, a book that, by the way, puts vegetables on top of the food pyramid where a lot of people think they belong. 
I'll be speaking with Deborah later in the show. First, it's time to head into the kitchen to check in with Milk Street cook Catherine Smart about this week's recipe. Catherine, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Uh, I'm good. We're here at Milk Street Kitchen, of course. And uh, J.M. Hirsch, our editorial director, was in uh, central Mexico recently, in Veracruz in particular. I don't know why I didn't get to go, but he did. And he came back with a few recipes, one of which I really loved was a shrimp and chipotle sauce. It was very simple. It was also foolproof. But we made some changes. So what did we do to the recipe? Okay, Chris. So you're right. We found this chipotle sauce. It's delicious. It's simple. We wanted to figure out a way to make shrimp tacos that were very hard to mess up. Um, So we start with the sauce. The chipotle sauce is a base of fresh tomatoes and peppers and a little bit of smoky chipotle. And something that I think is worth mentioning is the heat should be smoky, it should be lingering, um, but it shouldn't eviscerate your taste buds. I mean, in Mexico, the cuisine is really about balancing heat with other flavors. Like here we have the sweetness from the tomatoes, the acidity from some wine. It should be gentle and it should be balanced. So we make that simple sauce. And then for the shrimp, I mean, it's really easy to overcook shrimp. I think we're all guilty of it. So the way that we sort of gave ourselves an insurance policy, we seared the shrimp about 45 seconds on just one side. And so that gives you some browning, it develops some good flavor. And then we add those shrimp, which aren't cooked through yet, you add them to the sauce we made, which is off heat. So then you just have that really gentle residual heat that's gonna cook the shrimp the rest of the way through. Gentle sauce, gentle heat. I see a theme here. It's delicious with tacos, a little bit of avocado, some sour cream, maybe a squeeze of lime. It's also great over just plain white rice. I'll put it over rice and drink the rest of the wine. Catherine, thank you very much. Great recipe. Thanks, Chris. You can find our recipe for shrimp and chipotle sauce and many other Milk Street recipes at 177milkstreet.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. All of our shows are available on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn, Spotify, and also at our own site, MilkStreetRadio.com, where you can also download this week's recipe. Now it's time to take some of your cooking questions from my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Of course, she's star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals and also author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, are you ready for a new batch of, uh, of phone calls? Yeah, let's take some calls. Hello, welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Doris Ruth. Hi, Doris. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Westchester County, New York. How can we help you, Doris? I have a problem when I make toffee. The recipe I have doesn't have a temperature, and so sometimes it ends up not being toffee. It ends up being either dentist delight, (laughs) or it ends up being this granular mess that ends up being repurposed. Are you using a good thermometer to figure out? She doesn't know what temperature it's supposed to be. I don't know what temperature. Should it be 300? No, that's too high. What kind of sugar is it? Sometimes it'll work with brown sugar. Sometimes it'll work with white sugar. What's happening is the sugar syrup's getting overcooked, and that's why it gets really dense. I think... Isn't the typical candy crack stage 238, 239? I should use like a thermopop. That's what uh, I yes, have. Yes, exactly. That's pretty that, accurate. Yeah, they're great. Thermopan or thermopop, which is the somewhat less expensive version. And I think 238, 239 is about where it should be. Sarah, is that right? I'm trying to think because I'm thinking softball stage and right. then it goes into hard crack. Right. So I should have it at the softball stage? What's the ultimate texture you're looking for? It should be like butter crunch. It should be beyond softball then. It should crack. Yeah. yeah. So maybe yeah, it's... it should crack. Yeah. So I'm wrong. It's got to be higher than that. Yeah. So we're talking about caramel. 
Yeah. We did this article in Gourmet Magazine on burnt sugar, which is nothing more than the British word for caramel. And the way they do it in this particular article was with no water. So you take the sugar. That's what I do. You put it in a skillet. You cook it over medium heat, medium high heat. It starts to melt. You can stir it a little bit with a silicone spatula. And then it eventually will turn into caramel. And there's no issues with crystallization. You can see exactly it's the right color. Where's the butter? Just just hold on. I have breaking news. I I just got online. Oh, my God, that's cheating. You're supposed to have it in your head. No, 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 I I went to Thermaworks candy temperature chart. It says butterscotch and toffee, 270 to 290. Done. Okay, but so now back to where I've taken her. When do you add the butter? We know that when you make, say, for example, a uh, caramel sauce, you get the sugar to caramel, and then you add the cream, and it all bubbles up. Well, no, you add just a little bit of the cream at first and whisk it in, and that starts to cool it down, and you add the rest of it slowly. If you don't add all the cream at once, it won't bring the temperature down that fast and harden. I'm going to be honest with you. I've never done the butter business. So it's 270 to 290. So I was... All right. We were wrong. When do they have you put the butter in? You melt the butter and then you add the brown sugar. I think I just haven't been getting it hot enough. I'm on my fourth batch and and I'm tired of this. (laughs) (laughs) I don't blame you. Oh, my goodness. Well, try that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, well, Okay. Thank you. Thank you for that. Take care. Hello, welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Allison. Hey, Allison. Where are you calling from, and how can we help you? I'm calling from Somerville, Massachusetts, and I had a question about cooking fish. Okay. The question is whether you should or not, or? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely not. (laughs) The last couple times I've cooked it, though, it's broken into big chunks before it's done cooking, and it's with a couple different kinds of fish and a couple different cooking methods, so I'm not sure what's going on. First question is, where do you buy your fish? I usually go to Whole Foods. There's a couple great fishmongers down on Cambridge Street. There's New Deal, okay, and there's one down from there as well. And if you want really fresh fish, I find the the small places tend to be better. How are you cooking the fish, too? Yeah, I think that's the most important question. So one time I broiled some salmon, and it was almost done, but seemed like it still needed a couple more minutes, and it started breaking in. By the time I got it into a serving dish, it had pretty much completely fallen apart. Did you have it on parchment? Did you have it on oiled sheet pan? I had it on a silicone baking sheet on a sheet pan. So it wasn't sticking? No. Fish, especially oily fish, like tuna is the worst. If you barely cook tuna and let it sit for five minutes, it'll completely finish cooking. You have to cook it really rare, and especially a thick filet, like salmon's pretty fatty, it will continue cooking somewhat. So you really want to underbake it or undercook it. Secondly, I would use lower heat for fish. I think broiling is a little violent. Broiling is too powerful. I would uh, use very low heat on a grill. I would cook in a skillet over fairly modest heat. Because what's happening is the outside of the fish is overcooking before the inside's done. Just like a big roast, for example, you'd want to use a low oven and take it out before it's cooked and let it sit a few minutes and it will continue cooking. You know, I wanted to tell you how you can know how much it's cooked. Just pull it out and stick a knife through it. There's not any juices going to come charging out, you know, like you worry about, say, with a steak. And uh, fish cooks from the outside in. So when you stick your knife in it straight down, you should feel a little bit of resistance in the middle. 
and that means it's slightly undercooked. If the knife barely goes through, it's barely cooked, and put it in some more. But if there's a little bit of resistance in the middle, just get it out and let it rest. Guys, there's an easier solution to this. Just go buy an InstaReed thermometer, a good one, digital, and stick it in the middle of the thickest part of the fish, and it should read 125. 120 to 125, you're done. Uh, and once it hits that temperature, get it off fast and then let it sit. sit. The only fish you have to really worry about is tuna. I've taken it off rare, barely cooked, and it's you know medium well in 10 minutes. And when it's well done, it's really dry. And so when you take it off, one thing you need to do is slice it immediately. Because if you don't, if it sits there as a whole tuna steak, it holds temperature. So that's the one fish you have to be really careful with. I mean, recipes for years have been telling you to broil fish, but I, 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 I think it. I wouldn't do it either. I no. think it's, it's fish too, is very delicate. It's too risky. Lower temperatures give you a bigger window of doneness, if you right. will. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you. Okay, well, thanks You're for calling. You're welcome. Bye. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you like your cooking question answered, call us anytime, one 855 bowtie or 855-426-9843. You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street Radio. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Steve from Chapel Hill. How are you? Great. You don't know how excited I am. I'm trying <laughs> to contain myself. To talk to both of you, <laughs> it's like going to heaven. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. I know, really. It's our pleasure. Made our day. I have a kind of a dumb question, but here we go. I love making breaded pork chops. I put them in oil, fry them, and... Typically what I do is I get them, dunk them in egg wash, and then put them on some panko or something, and then just fry them up. And I notice a lot of recipes call for first flouring them, and I just wondered why that is. I don't do it partly just to save on washing dishes, but I'm open to any suggestions you all have. When I was in college one summer, I got a job renovating an old farmhouse in northern Massachusetts, and before you actually put on wallpaper and stuff, there's a base coat and spackle. So this is uh -huh. base coat. It's a base coat. You're putting the flour on so the egg sticks better to the pork chop because sometimes pork chops can be a little wet or moist. If you do right. a really good job drying them off, however, you could probably get away without it, but that's what it's there. It'll stick better to the flour. Yeah. It's like extra glue and extra right. insulation, which I helps see. to protect the lean pork And it does top. get, when the flour gets a little wet, it gets gluey. Yeah. So it really yeah. helps. By the way, this thing where you do flour, egg wash, breadcrumbs is in the, when we go to cooking school, it's called standard breading procedure. How sexy is that? <laughs> I know, really. <laughs> and you got to make sure you have a wet hand and a dry hand because otherwise you bread yourself. But one way around creating a lot of dishes is to put a piece of parchment or a piece of aluminum foil on the counter for the flour and the breadcrumbs. So instead right. of having three separate pie oh, plates, you know, you have yeah. one pie plate for the eggs and then the other two for the dry ingredients. And then all you have to do is pick up the paper with the, you know, breadcrumbs or the flour and dump it in the wait, garbage wait, wait, when wait, you're wait, done. Wait, 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 wait. Let's go back. The wet hand and the dry hand. Right. So how does this work? Let's say you're going to start with the flour. So that is going to be your dry hand. So, so that's my your... right hand's my dry hand. Right. Okay. For me, it would be my left. Let's say it's you. That's your dry hand. Yeah. So you use that for the first aluminum foil with the flour and Got you it. pat the pork dry. And then you pick it up and you drop it into the pie plate with the beaten eggs. And then you... Take your, your left hand. hand and you coat it there, and then you pick mm. it up with your left hand, let the egg drip off, and then you put it in the breadcrumbs without touching. You just drop it. Then you go back to dry hand, 
and lift up. The thing about the parchment is you can lift up the sides of the paper because now it's wet. And if you stuck your hand in it to make sure, you'd get breaded. So you lift up the sides Uh. of the parchment and sort of toss it around in the parchment flat on the counter. And when it's mostly coated, then you can finish coating it and take it off. Oh, it feels like when I do that, I have a woolly mitten on because I have about a half inch of coating on my I know. Hands. I still end up so, breading myself anyway, yeah. but it's just a thought. I yeah. like that. It's a nice extra coating because aside from, you know, the fact that it's a helpful glue so that the crumbs really stay uh-huh. on better, it is more insulation. And as we know, pork has been bred to be the other white meat, so it's very, very lean. And all this insulation right. really helps it to come out moist. Well, this is great. I wish you all the best. And thank, thank you. Thank you so much for taking my call. Thank what you, Steve. great pleasure. Thank you, Steve. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. After the break, I speak with Deborah Madison, author of Vegetarian Cooking for Everyone, as well as her latest work, In My Kitchen. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it you know I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like man this beer is good (laughs) there are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with, like, spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine, like, something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. (laughs) 
yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavor of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to talk to Deborah Madison. Of course, she's a well-known chef, a writer, a cooking teacher, and also an innovator in vegetarian cooking. She began her career at the San Francisco Zen Center, followed by the opening of Green's Restaurant in 1979. She's also the owner of Cafe Escalara in Santa Fe with Chez Panisse chef David Tannis. Her newest cookbook, In My Kitchen, is a collection of her favorite vegetarian recipes, which reflects an elegant simplicity of technique and also of flavor. So let's talk about vegetables, of course. Yeah. What types of techniques and ideas have you borrowed or taken from other cultures? Because other cultures tend to cook vegetables probably better than most people in Northern Europe did, which is where we got most of our recipes initially. That's true. I, and, and I'm still, I think, very Northern European in some of my the dishes I like. But what have I used from other people? Well, take, I mean, olive oil. We don't think of it as a vegetable. But it is an oil pressed from a fruit, the olive. We've now, we, we're familiar with it, and we now use it in desserts. And that's a barrier that had to be broken. Hmm. But, but I think now it's very acceptable. Italy is often the inspiration for that, but not just Italy, also Greece. I think, actually, my, my, my lens is more botanical than anything else. You know, so I tend to look at plants that are in the same family that have a relationship with each other, and that always interests me very much and often guides a dish. So what would be an example of uh, a family? Well, an example would be a roasted Jerusalem artichoke soup, which is in the sunflower family. And so I like to finish that with sunflower sprouts, huh. which are big and fleshy and and fresh and kind of a nice contrast to the earthiness of the um, Jerusalem artichokes. And also some sunflower seeds that are toasted and put on top. You know, it kind of ties the whole thing together in, in a really um, harmonious and, I think, natural way. So... I grew up with French vinaigrette. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't know there were other ways to do it. Well, I guess there's ranch dressing, but, but <laughs> the, the rest of the world has lots of other things to say about this. So could you help us out here? So if you have some nice fresh vegetables or maybe they're blanched, whatever, how do you think about dressing 
vegetables? Well, I I actually do like a vinaigrette, and I love a shallot vinaigrette, and it's what I turn to time and time and time again. For me, what's important is dressing vegetables while they're warm and huh. and not shocking them, which means you kind of have to be able to anticipate you're going to pull them out of the pot when they're hot, and maybe you're going to spread them on a towel and let them finish cooking in their own heat, but dress them before their their room temperature. To me, that experience is always the most aromatic, regardless of the dressing you're using. I never thought of that. Um, I love the fact that you include in my kitchen uh, a cheese souffle. Oh, good. (laughs) Well, I just thought about, you know, here at Milk Street, we're running around the world trying to get new ideas, but there are things that have stood the test of time that still make a great deal of sense. I just thought, you know what? A cheese souffle, which takes a few minutes to put together, is actually simple, delicious, and a perfect food item. It is. I I love it. And, you know, people are, I think, so intimidated to make a souffle, and when they're served one, they're in such awe. And it's so so simple, and that's why I wanted to put that there, because I, I really want to encourage people to try it at the same time. I I love to bring a souffle to the table because when people have dropped in and there's nothing in the house, usually it's going to be a souffle <laughs> that comes in, and they're happy to have it. It's fun. You commented that early on when you were cooking at the Zen Center, the feedback was often just needs a little more cheese. And I remember the early Moosewood cookbook. There was a lot of cheese in, quote-unquote, vegetarian cooking back in the day. Mm-hmm. Have we gotten over that now, finally? Is, is that? I think we have. I, and I know, I mean, when I was putting this book together, I was looking at one of my favorite recipes. I used to make it greens, and there's cheese in it where it doesn't need to be there. And the line of my recipe was, and the cheese is there to make it more substantial or something like that. And honestly, I think in 1979, in the early 80s, I was really nervous about what are we going to make for people who aren't vegetarian that they're going to feel satisfied? Well, cheese really filled that bill. But now I, I, I don't know. Now you sort of have to apologize if you, if you use it. It's, it seems like we've gone way to the other side. I'm not ready to give up cheese. I grew up on a dairy farm. I love cheese. I love the craft of cheese. I think it's a wonderful food. You know, I've spoken to a number of people from other cultures, Japan and Vietnam, other places, Thailand, and they all seem to have, uh, the culture seem to have a feeling about how one approaches cooking, and you're, as you say, a recovering Buddhist. So for you, is cooking, is it about how you move in the kitchen? Is it about how you think about food? Is it spiritual? Is it just about the food? Is it, what is cooking for you? Well, I happen to be sort of a mental person, and I maybe spend my day writing and reading, and I am so happy to get into the kitchen where I can touch things and handle things or go out in the garden and um, pick what we're having for dinner. For me, it's, it's just such a huge joy to finally be in the kitchen, and, I, and it's a relief, too, from the rest of my life. It kind of balances things out a bit. I can pull other people's books off a shelf or look at your magazine or, and say, oh, what's the adventure here tonight? And I actually love cooking from other people's books because you're really entering a different mind set. And, I, and sometimes I just want to see where it's going to take me. Okay, it's time for my two uh, de stupid questions. Uh, the first is, uh, are there two or three pantry ingredient items you have on hand you think are essential and that maybe a lot of people don't have, they should? 
Well, I yeah, I'm sure there are. Um, I happen to love um, unpasteurized soy sauce, which is it's not that hard to find. Um, I get it at my co-op, you know, and mm-hmm. and other places too. All it means is you have to keep it in the refrigerator, but it has such a good hmm. flavor. I th- I just think it's it's fantastic. I I love to use it. It it just seems richer than hmm. other kinds of soy sauce. Togoroshi sashimi. Yeah. That, I love that. Well, we seem to be in Japan right now, <laughs> but I always have that in my cupboard now. And you you want to just describe has... to people what's in that? What what the mixture is? Yeah, I was a little citrus, chili seeds of some kind. Usually sesame seeds, um, salt. Uh, sashimi is seven. There's seven ingredients in it, and I can't remember them all right now. But it's spicy and um, complex, and and it can really wake up foods, I think, very nicely. I also have, and, and I know this is going to sound kind of elitist, but I do have real balsamic vinegar that's made by a person here in central New Mexico, and it's fantastic. And once you've tasted that, you just don't yeah. want to taste any other kind of balsamic vinegar. It's so rich and it's so interesting. And just a few drops are all you need to finish a dish. Smoked salt, I I love I haven't used it for a while, but I do have it and I sometimes oh yeah, the smoked salt, that's great to mm. use. Smoked paprika, this was a revelation to me because for a long time, if, to get smoke into dishes that didn't rely on bacon, um, you had to use, say, chipotle chilies. So they're smoky, but they're also hot. And and so that's fine if you're making chili, but it's maybe not what you always want. So a smoked sweet paprika is is a fantastic thing to have. You've been cooking a long time. There must be, are, are there a couple of techniques maybe you, you learned in the restaurant world or things that, that are techniques that you use all the time, but maybe people are not as familiar with? Well, I do use, I use a lot of herbs, and that's not exactly a technique, but it is an ingredient-driven way of cooking. And I I can't imagine not using them. I don't know if that counts in your book, but but I grow herbs. I use them. I pick them. Um, they really do so much for me in terms of making a dish come alive. I don't know that I have really unusual techniques, but but sometimes a recipe will feature a little different way of thinking about something that I that I like. The scrambled eggs smothered with crispy breadcrumbs. Mm. It's still eggs and toast. I love that recipe. I saw that in your book. Um, you've been at the revolution starting in the late 70s. Uh, that's about when I get started. And you've seen enormous amount of change. W- was there a moment or two in the last what, 35 years now, where you realized that things really were changing or there was a moment that changed you in terms of your career cooking? What were those moments you go back and think about? Well, that, that that's an interesting question. I mean, definitely things started to change. I think of Seed Savers Exchange, which started about the same time Zen Center did, and they did so much to bring back the heirloom fruits and vegetables and herbs and flowers that that we all enjoy today. That was a significant change. I certainly remember certain ingredients coming into our lives, like um, sun-dried tomatoes from Italy. 
I remember when they arrived in San Francisco and Carlo Midione had a little party and we all tasted them and thought they were amazing. <laughs> and uh, for me, a personal really changing moment was my first meal at Chez Panisse um, when I was a Zen student. And I'd pretty much given up on ever really getting to eat out or do anything like that again. And um, I went, Alice invited me to Chez Panisse, and I went, and this was the food I thought food should always be, and it was just tremendously exciting, and that's what made me, I think, really want to take cooking seriously. That was Deborah Madison, chef, cooking instructor, and author of her latest book, In My Kitchen. The expression goes, I don't know much about art, but I know what I like. And that, of course, applies to cooking. Great art embodies a clear vision and simplicity of execution that turns a pretty picture into something seminal, even transcendent. And the same can be said of a truly great cookbook. The recipes reflect a point of view about cooking that perfectly captures a moment in time, as well as an effortless mastery of the topic. In My Kitchen by Deborah Madison is one of those books, the personification of simplicity. As they say about music, it's the notes that are not played that really make the song. Right now, I'm headed to Formaggio Kitchen in Cambridge to speak with wine expert Stephen Muse about Cuvée. Stephen, how are you? Good, Chris. White, red, red, red. That's what I see. Four glasses of wine? Today we're going to try to elucidate a term that I think all of our listeners have probably heard. The term is cuvee. Uh, Sometimes you can see it on the label of a wine bottle, cuvee such and such, right? It's a very old term. And it comes from, it's very simple, the vat in which you put wine to ferment in French is called a cuve, C-U-V-E. So when wine has been put into a vat and a particular batch of wine has been made, it's a cuvee. I did not know that. So, Chris, we're going to taste these four wines. And really what it comes down to is to think of a cuvee as a single package of wine, a single assembling of components that the winemaker has chosen to make a harmonious and agreeable wine. And there are all kinds of ways to slice this. So we're going to begin with the first wine. Okay. Um, and you're going to give that one a taste. Lovely, light finish, deep mineral base to it. You could drink this on your own. I may drink the rest of it on my own. It's a really beautiful little wine. It's made by Sergio Motora. He's in Umbria. He works with Grachetto grape, and pretty much everything he makes is made with this single grape. But he makes multiple cuvées from Grachetto fruit. Now, the one that distinguishes this in his lineup is that it has added to it a little bit of new oak something that the other cuvées do not have. Not only can a cuvée be made from different fruit, different varietals, but it can be made in a different way in the cellar. So if a winemaker wants to take a different approach, he makes a separate cuvée. In this case, a grachetto with a little bit of new Okay, now I'm confused. So does it have to be the same grape or combination of grapes... Well, remember, in every case here, we're talking about wine that comes out of a single cellar. And we're talking about, just picture it, separate vats of wine. It does not have to be the same varietal, exactly. It can be handled a little bit differently. It's just the decision that the winemaker makes about wanting to treat one batch of wine a little differently from another. Okay, so this is the first bottle of white wine. Right. And I don't see the word cuvee on the label anywhere. Right. 
help me out here. Okay. So what am I looking so, for? Well, sometimes you're going to see the word cuvee on the label. Sometimes you won't see that word. Yeah. But this is what wine consumers need to be up to speed on. The wine is going to have two important pieces of information on the label. The estate that produces it and the appellation, the kind of wine yeah. that it is legally. But somewhere in between those, there's going to be another indicator from the winery that says this is a distinct cuvee. So they could just make up any name they want. Absolutely. You know, in right. the Rhone Valley, they often make a cuvee tradition and a cuvee prestige, a lower level and a higher level. But any fantasy name will do. Okay. And when you see that on the label, that's your clue that this is one of some number of wines that are produced by that single estate. So I can see the name of the estate, it says Sauvignon Blanc, but then there's a third piece of information which would tell me that it's a specific cuvee of that, a style of that Sauvignon Blanc. If there is a third piece of information, yeah. that is very okay. likely what it Got is. It. Next glass is red. So Chris, what you just tasted is Cabernet Franc from the Loire Valley. The estate is Jolin Plaisantin. You can see that on the label. It's a Chinon, that's the appellation. But what do you see in the middle here in big letters? Les eaux, les bas. The high and the low together. So this is a cuvee this wine team makes. They make several. But this particular one, it's a combination of fruit from higher and lower altitudes. I like this wine because it's very smooth. You're right, it does have some depth to it, but it's also light and refreshing. Yes. But it doesn't have any real strange, distinctive characteristics. It's right there in a happy middle. Yes. Okay. So let's go to wine number three. Also red, Domaine Saladin. In this part of the world, in the Rhone Valley, every wine that you drink, almost without exception, is going to be some kind of cuvee. And that is because the Appalachian rules require that there be multiple grape varieties involved in the blend. So this is a cuvee that is made in conformity with Appalachian standards. Did you enjoy it? Yeah, it was very nice. It was light and lively, but it had a lot of separate flavors mm -hmm. and characteristics. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was quite good. And the fourth wine is what I would call a freestyle wine. So this is made in the French Southwest. It's in a location where the Appalachian rules aren't particularly restrictive. And I want to show you the back label, and you're going to see a group of grapes here that you have never seen in the same bottle of wine before. What does it say there? Merlot, Pinot Noir. I don't know what that is. Origa <coughs> Nathianel. That's a that. port grape. Oh. So first of all, Merlot and Pinot Noir are never in the same wine. And to have two French varieties mixed with a Portuguese variety, very unusual. Petit Verdot. Yeah, that's a Bordeaux varietal. And, and then Diver. look. Yeah, 17% of who knows what. So this is a freestyle blend. I really love it. It's got a lot of body, a lot of character. Did well, you enjoy I it? hate to use terms like smoky, leathery, and et cetera, but yeah, it does but have a lot of that yeah. in it. This is from Terre de Cos. It's a Vin de France. This is their, the cuvee is there. It's called Bay Pourp, the Purple Bay. I'm going to walk away today with a nice buzz Yeah. because I've had some wine. <laughs> yeah. But what else am I taking away? Because I'm still a little confused. Here's what's important about it. It's true that you don't see the word cuvee on every bottle of wine, but you will hear people in a retail shop talk about it. Um, and you should really have a clear understanding of what they're talking about. And what they mean is that on any given wine estate, where there's a multiplicity of fruit, there's a multiplicity of vineyards, 
they have a little bit of flexibility in the way they can put the wine together. They're going to exercise creativity and they're going to make multiple lots of the wine based on the sources of fruit that they have. So here's my Vermont analogy. I go to buy a Ford 250 pickup. I can get the King Ranch edition, I can get this edition. So same fundamental chassis and engine, but you can get lots of different finishes and they end up looking and feeling quite different. I like it, Chris. I like that analogy. I'll give you a Ford 250, you give me the wine, and we're, we're all set. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Chris. That was wine expert Stephen Muse. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. After the break, more of your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits, They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, 
Call us at 617-249-3167 or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now it's time to take some calls uh, with my uh, learned co-host, Sarah Moulton. You're so nice. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Heather calling from Los Angeles, California. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. How can I help you? A lot of the time when I'm preparing recipes, I like to use different spices, and I also include like dried herbs or even lemon peel like under the umbrella of spices. And I want to know, how can I build spice blends because there's really not a set of rules that I've found to create spice blends. Well, the first thing is a guy in New York whose name is Lior, L-I-O-R, Sercaz, S-E-R-C-A-R-Z, I think. His book is The Spice Companion, and he owns a little store in New York that sells spices and blends. I think he's the best guy in the country for spices, and that book's really interesting, or go to his website. His company's called La Boite, B-O-I-T-E, the other thing I would do is think about different cultures. So Morocco has a certain series of spices that go together or Sichuan or Japan or Thailand and create spice blends based upon those kinds of recipes because they've been doing this a long time and things naturally go they together. They sort of know what works. But the one thing he said to me recently, he said, I will never do a spice blend for fish. And what he meant was you can use a spice blend for lots of things. So we recently cooked three things, a very one-layer cake, uh, salad dressing over some raw vegetables. We also did some salmon. And we used the same Moroccan blend that I put together with all three, and they were great. Why wouldn't he do it with fish? Well, his point was spice blends can be used with lots of different things. But the idea of having just one blend for chicken and one blend for fish. Oh, I see what you're so saying. So in other words, you can use them for lots of different things. Sweet things, savory things, salads. So I would do that. Of course, the French don't use spices, so... <laughs> But I, you know, I mentioned I, I really love Indian food, so that's where I came to understand much more about spices is through Indian cuisine. And I agree with Chris; it's fun to sort of go to a country and see what they usually put into their spice mix, and then customize it for yourself. The other thing is, of course, if your spices are terrible, then um, you know, getting really good stuff in small amounts of them is small amounts is key. Very small amounts, and pay the money and get the good stuff, and it'll make a huge difference in your cooking. Last suggestion is get real cinnamon, not that garbage that we use over here, but it's very floral and fruity and almost savory is the salon cinnamon, I yes. think. And try that. Sri Lanka. That's just a wonderful yeah. thing to use as well. One last thought. You know, salt and pepper, it came from Northern Europe where there was a lot of pepper, but just forget about salt and pepper. It's a dumb old idea. Well, don't forget about salt because salt right. is key. But it doesn't but have pepper to go should with only, pepper. Pepper should only be used right. where necessary. But there's Sichuan pepper, there's Urfa pepper, there's Aleppo, there's all sorts there's of all different things. all these cool peppers, yeah. Uh, or spicy pepper. Right. Yeah. That's a really great tip because I do realize now that I have a tendency to kind of use pepper in almost everything. We all do. I probably shouldn't be. <laughs> no. Well, in the Middle East, they will use salt and cumin. Other cultures don't use pepper, pepper. like we do. Yeah. Give that a shot. Perfect. Right. Okay, thanks so much. Okay, thank you. thank you. Bye. Hello, who's calling? Hi, this is Gwen Willman. Hi, Gwen. Where are you calling from? 
I'm calling from central Alabama. Nice. As you can probably tell. <laughs> well, yes, a little bit from the accent. I wouldn't have been able to place it that exactly. But how can we help you? I have a question. What is the correct way to boil chicken breast to ensure that the meat's tender? I've tried cooking it longer, shorter, adding a little oil, but nothing works. It's always very dense and tough. Let me ask you a question. So when you boil it, are you actually boiling it? I mean, like you see big bubbles like you're boiling noodles or something. Yes. That is the problem right there. Protein does not like to be boiled. It gets very tough. And particularly something as lean as white meat chicken. Yes. So I would recommend reducing the temperature and simmering it gently. Is this boneless, skinless chicken breast or it's a whole chicken? It is. Well, this is the perfect candidate for sous vide, which I know... You know, you're not going to go out and buy a sous vide circulator. They cost 100 bucks or so. But you can put it in water and bring the water up with a chicken in it to 175 degrees. Let it sit there for a while, 10 or 15 minutes. I've forgotten the timing until the chicken itself is up to temperature, which is 165 or so, 170. But if you do it that way, it's not boiling. It's, it's not even simmering. It's 175. And it's very gentle cooking. That'll give you the best chicken. Wonderful. My mother was a wonderful cook, and she had the most delicious boiled chicken. It had almost a buttery taste to it. Let me ask you another question, Gwen. When your mom cooked it, when you cook it, do you both cook it in water? Yes. Because you might want to try poaching it in chicken broth. As well, sort that's of a... another thing. She had, when she boiled her chicken, of course, she boiled it in water, and it made a delicious Stock. broth. Yeah. But did she do boneless, skinless chicken breasts? I doubt it. You might want to, you know, stop doing boneless, skinless yeah, chicken breasts point. and do a whole oh. chicken. If you do a whole chicken, put the whole chicken in water, just simmering for half okay. an hour, turn off the heat and let it oh. sit about 45 minutes or so until it comes up to temperature. It'll be perfectly cooked. And then oh. you can take the meat off the bone and do what you want. I totally agree with Sarah. Start with a whole chicken. 30 minutes at a a very low simmer. Turn the heat off. Let it sit for 45 minutes or so until it comes up to temperature. And if you want to make it even more interesting, you could throw in a little bit of carrot, celery, onion, maybe smash garlic, clove, some fresh thyme or parsley. Or ginger if you like a Chinese. Want to go Asian. But you know the real thing. So where all that flavor comes from in a stock is, well, fat, but also the wonderful texture that comes from the bones. Yeah, definitely do the whole chicken, and then you have a whole chicken. Yeah. You got more food. Yeah, and you can always freeze it after you've cooked it if you don't can't eat it all at one fell swoop. And then you have soup. Right. Yes. You're going to be a happy camper when you go back to chicken on the bone. Oh, yes. I think this will be much more like what I remember, what I grew up eating. Yes, wonderful. Okay, well, Gwen, th- thank thank, you. thanks, Gwen. Thank you very much. I enjoy your show. Thank you for calling. <laughs> Bye-bye, Nan. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking question answered, give us a ring at one 855 That's 855-426-9843. You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Julia Hanna calling from Acton, Massachusetts. Okay, that's sort of your neck of the woods there, right, Chris? It's right next door. Yes. yes. How can we help you? <laughs> yes. I made your foolproof pie crust in the first issue of the magazine, and the texture is definitely better than what I usually get, but I still had quite a lot of shrinkage. I'm wondering if maybe I should have chilled the dough a little longer, or 
what I could have done to make it not shrink up quite so much when it comes out of the oven? Yeah, it's a good question. Well, a few things. When you fit the dough into the pie plate, be sure you press the sides down into the plate because if they're sort of stretched when you put them in, they tend to shrink. So push down a little bit. Okay. How long did you leave it in the fridge? Like half an hour? I think I did whatever the recommended amount yeah. was. Yeah, probably about 30 minutes. Well, if you can leave it overnight, that's even better. But leave it an hour. And then I would stick it in the freezer for like 20 minutes as well. Oh, okay. Now, did you pre-bake the shell? I did. I made the brown butter uh, tart that you had with it. Well, another thing you can do is put aluminum foil, of course, on the pie shell. Right. If you fill it with weights about three-quarters full, that really helps. We found if it was only halfway, it wasn't as good. Don't use metal weights. They didn't work as well as ceramic or rice or beans. Okay. And the last thing is before you take it out of the oven and take the foil off, lift off foil around the edge and make sure that the pie dough is set. Because very often what happens after 20 minutes or so, if you take the foil off, it's still a little wet and it's not fully set. But if you let it really set and get dry Mm. with the foil on it and the weights in it, It'll set. You shouldn't get more than 10 or 15% shrinkage if you do it that way. This is a single crust pie, is that right? Yes. Something we used to do at La Tulipa restaurant I worked at, because even if you do everything right, it's going to shrink somewhat. Besides, I really agree with Chris about not stretching it, not pulling it because it will bounce back, is to put the edge up higher than you want it to be. So that when the top edge does shrink, it will shrink Mm -hmm. down to where it should have been if it never shrunk. Do you understand what I'm saying? I do, yeah. I do. Well, it's good to know that even in very nice restaurants, pie crusts shrink and you have they to do. outwit them. All pre-baked shells will shrink somewhat. Yeah. The key is they don't shrink so much that they can't contain the filling. Yeah. And that particular right. recipe you talk about, the brown sugar, is a very thin filling, so it's yeah. not a problem like a pumpkin pie or something. Right. Now, that was a delicious isn't that great? Recipe despite the shrinkage. <laughs> yes. Well, well yeah. we've given you all the tricks, so I'm sure next time you won't have that problem. Yes, I know I'm going to do better next time. <laughs> well, that's why Thank we you. cook. Thank you so much. And, okay. and, and may, by the way, when you serve it, nobody will know. Oh, and don't that's, apologize. Yeah, that's, nobody will know no, if it's shrunk it's a little. It's a perfect pie every yeah. time you serve it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I'm a no-apology baker. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. Okay. Thanks, well, Julia. Thanks, Julia. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you like your cooking question answered, call us anytime, 1-855-4-BOWTIE or 855-426-9843. You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. This week's Milk Street Basic is aerating red wine. Everyone knows that when you open a bottle of red wine, it's good to let it breathe. That way, the flavor of the wine really comes out. The problem is if you simply take the cork out, the neck of the bottle is so narrow that very little oxygen gets into the wine itself. You can let that bottle sit for an hour and the wine will not have changed. So here's a better solution. Take two water carafes or pitchers, pour the wine out of the bottle into one of the pitchers and pour it back and forth about 10 times. This will expose the wine to a lot of oxygen opening up its flavor. Now, if you're not convinced this works, the next time you have a bottle of red wine, take out the cork, pour out a small amount into a glass, and then with the rest of it, pour it back and forth. And then do a taste test. Believe me, you'll find that the wine that's been aerated tastes much better.
This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Nancy Silverton opened La Brea Bakery in 1989 in Los Angeles and since then has become one of America's most accomplished bread bakers. Currently paired up with Mario Batali at Osteria Moza and Pizzeria Moza, Nancy is still doing what she loves best, which is baking bread. Today at Milk Street, she chats about sourdough, about pizza, and about the time she made Julia Child cry. Welcome to Milk Street. Glad to be here. So uh, I know you're, you're famous for your pizza dough. If you're talking to me or anybody else who's not at your level, is there s- some basic guidelines, things you could tell us that would get us in the ballpark of good pizza? All I know that the ingredients of, in my dough are uh, a wheat flour. I put a touch of rye in there to help with the fermentation and also to make the flour itself look a little bit dustier, but not Mm -hmm. a lot of rye. I put in wheat germ, and the reason I put in wheat germ is I like the the little sweetness of the germ, added Uh germ, even though there's already, you know, I'm using a white flour, not a wheat flour, so the germ has been removed and the bran, but I'm putting a little bit of the sweetness of the germ back in and a touch of malt. But that's it. So there's no olive oil in the dough. It might be the amount of time I allow it to ferment. So you just put in some of the water, let the sponge sit, and then... Yes, some of the water, some of the... Oh, and yeast, of course. So it's not a sourdough crust, so there's also also yeast in the dough. So the concept of sourdough, unless you have a starter, is you're trying to attract wild yeast spores. Is that right? Uh Uh-huh. You are the creator of your own leavening, you know, your own yeast. So could you just, and I've read a little bit about this, and I've tried it with grapes, and I've tried it with this and that, and the other thing, potato. How does that work? How do you attract them? What's, I mean, just explain it to the rest of us who don't really get it, maybe. Well, you know, when I was, for instance, teaching myself how to bake bread, I really literally started with a teaspoon of this and, and a sprinkle of that, and every single day I would just make little changes, knowing in the end what I wanted. I also knew from things that I had read about Stephen Sullivan was that his the texture of his starter was a slurry, uh, sort of the texture of a pancake batter. And so what I did is I mixed flour and water together until it was that texture. I bundled up a bunch of grapes. And what the grapes do is simply to help sort of jumpstart that process, sort of twofold. One is that there's natural and beneficial bacteria on the skins of grapes, but also the juice from the grapes provide extra food for the yeast to grow and multiply. Um, This is a story that you've repeated, I know, but I got this story from Julia Child's producer, Jeff Drummond. It just was one of those great stories when you made that um, secret brioche tart or whatever with a white sauce and on baking with Julia, I guess, and Julia bit into it, and everyone thought that she burned her mouth because she started crying, and uh, it wasn't that. It was that you had reminded her of some wonderful taste memory from France. Um, I just love that story. Could you just just tell us the first-person version of it? (laughs) Well, you did a good job, by the way, but uh, besides the fact that uh, it was great to be on her show, I was making this dessert for her, and... Before we started the filming, she, you know, let me know that she liked to film as close to live as possible, meaning as little editing as possible. So she wanted the episode to take whatever it was it was supposed to take, say, half an hour. And she said in order to be successful, 
and make it in that half an hour, you know, a few minutes before we need to wrap up, I'll tap you on the hip and that means you have three minutes. And so I was, you know, carefully finishing this dessert and one of the <laughs> elements was sautéed stone fruit in a wine and sugar syrup, which meant that that stone fruit is piping hot, right? And uh, that's when I got that tap that finished right. the dessert and let me taste it. And so I, you know, spooned it out of the pan and I spooned it over the brioche tart and put a dollop of the zabayon and some almonds and some powdered sugar and she cut it and she ate it so quickly. And then I saw these tears flowing down her uh, cheeks and I was just aghast. <laughs> and I'm looking at her and I'm looking at her tears and I'm, and you can see see in my face is like, uh-oh, what is happening here? And then she said, this is a dessert to cry over, you know, and then I'm like, oh. <laughs> Gone from the, the very bottom, the depths of despair to the heights of right. culinary startup. Yes, and by the way, I sort of always use it as what, when asked by a journalist what my crowning moment was, I always say, you know, it was the time that I made Julia Childs cry. That was La Brea Bakery's Nancy Silverton. Earlier in the show, I spoke with Deborah Madison, which made me think, oddly enough, about getting old. And I mean old as a cook. You know, at some point, older cooks arrive. They arrive at a point of simplicity and economy. Baked ricotta with thyme, caramelized onion frittata. No extra ingredients, no wasted steps, a clear sense of culinary purpose. Deborah Madison has arrived. That's it for this week on Milk Street Radio. If you missed us this week, you can listen to all of our shows on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. Our shows are also downloadable on our brand new website. Please check it out, 177milkstreet.com. That's where we also post all the recipes you hear on this show. Thanks for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Production assistant Carly Helmetog. Senior audio engineer Douglas Sugarts. Senior audio editor Melissa Allison with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help Debbie Paddock. Theme music by Tubab Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Thank you.